Work life and home life do not coexist in isolation for parents or really anyone. A good day at home can cause a better attitude and performance at work the next day. Compliments from the boss can lead to a better mood at home. Assistant Professor Catherine Lynn at Dartmouth College recently co-wrote a paper with Sarah Burgard looking at these interactions called Working, Parenting, and Work-Home Spillover, Gender Differences and the Work-Home Interface Across the Life Course. The parents look at how the interaction between work life and home life changes throughout the different stages of parenthood and how it can differ between men and women. They call this interaction a spillover. Both kind of in the research world, but also kind of in our lived realities, I think we have a pretty good understanding for how, let's say, our work behavior, our work lives, and separately our home lives might impact our overall well-being. Um, So we know, for example, research that shows that job satisfaction is highly related to your health. Um, And I know from personal experience that when I have a good day at work, um, I generally have lower stress levels and might make better choices about what I eat and so on. But um, increasingly, due to a a number of different things, um, partially due to sort of increasing demands at both work and home, but also due to um, demographic changes in who is working and who is staying at home. Um, Our work and our home lives are more and more um, sort of synergistic or are more likely to influence each other. Um, So a good day at work could lead me to be a better household uh, partner um, or a better partner. Um, Likewise, a relaxing night at home could let me uh, do a better job at my job the next day. So the concept of spillover is meant to kind of capture this synergy. So it's the ways in which our work and our home lives are not sort of as sectioned off or separate as they used to be and can rather just bleed over or spill over into the other domain. It should come as no surprise that these spillovers aren't consistent throughout all stages of parenthood. The responsibilities for the parents of a newborn are much different than those of an adolescent. Similarly, demands at work will change throughout one's career. Their paper tries to tease out these effects instead of just simplifying the concept of parenthood as one isolated event. Yeah, so, um, you know, we can both think about um, what is happening in the work domain and what is happening in the home domain as you, um, as children basically age. So as time passes and as you get older, um, you can imagine, for example, the responsibilities that you first started at um, in your job Um, might change over the course of time as you either become better at your job or you become recognized um, by your organization as being better and you're given more and more responsibilities or different kinds of responsibilities. Uh, Similarly, you can imagine that the behaviors, actions, emotional and mental requirements of being the parent of an infant or of a toddler even um, would be completely different from what uh, parenting an adolescent or uh, even a young adult uh, might be. And so as you combine those two kind of life course changes together, you can imagine that the ways in which they might balance out for an individual um, would change um, over time. And so this paper is really trying to capture just how exactly that change, what exactly that change looks like. But how can we measure a spillover, really? Can we really pinpoint that a fun night at home with the kids caused me to make a killer presentation at work the next day? There are a number of ways that we can imagine, just thinking about the description that I gave of the experience of spillover, um, that we could measure it. Um, This particular study uses a quantitative approach, um, so we rely on uh, nationally representative survey data and the measures that are available in those data. Um, Inconsistent with the rest of the literature that kind of looks at these 
experiences. Um, the most common way that, uh, researchers kind of look at this as really by self-report. So you should pr probably take the concept of work-home spillover and add the word perceived in front of it. So it's about an individual's perception of the extent to which they feel like their work is enhancing or not enhancing their home lives and vice versa. Um, you know, so we can discuss whether or not perception is an important measure, but there is sort of pretty robust empirical evidence that shows that perception is really related to health and well-being. So it doesn't really matter to what extent your work and family lives are objectively, if, if we can even think about an objective way of measuring that, um, positively or negatively shaping each other. But whether or not you perceive them to be is um, very important, particularly if we think about like the stress process and how that shapes your health and well-being. The five different stages the paper separates a child's development into are one, becoming a parent, two, starting a parent a school-aged child, three, starting a parent an adolescent, four, starting a parent a young adult, and five, starting a parent an adult child. So after crunching the numbers and controlling for all the different variables, what does Kathy think are the most important takeaways from their paper? So I think the, the big take-home message that I would want um, either other researchers who work in this domain, um, but also just sort of the average layperson to take away is that um, a, being a working parent is a lifelong role and that we can kind of track the influence of that lifelong role um, through changes in the ways in which your work and your home lives do or do not mesh. Um, and to think about a little bit of the specifics, um, one of the big findings um, is that or one of the major, I guess, patterns or trends that we find is that there is um, a decrease over the adult life course in conflict between work and home. Um, so we can um, we can imagine this as like it it gets a little easier maybe as people age. Um, they get a little bit better at their jobs. They get a little bit better at being parents, and so they might find that the ways in which their work and home lives con conflict with each other decreases. Um, and part of this is explained by life course stage, but also part of this is a developmental process. So you can imagine from a psychological perspective, um, people are gaining more cognitive ability to handle both of their uh, responsibilities. Um, but the thing that I found kind of surprising and I didn't really expect was that there's less of a clear developmental story around positive spillover or enhancement. So where, whereas like conflict decreases um, over the life course, it seems like sort of the extent to which you perceive your home life positively benefiting your work life or vice versa is mostly shaped by distinct events. So um, the birth of a child is a big one, but also maybe as your child ages into adulthood and stuff like that. I find another surprising finding to me is that um, we, in contrast with the rest of the, the literature and even maybe um, common sense. We don't find any results for new parents with regards to work family conflict. So our new parents in the sample don't report significant changes in their perception of work family conflict. Um, but we do find that they uh, report changes in their um, positive spillover reports um, in inconsistent ways that we would expect for conflict. And one of the um, potential explanations for this is that our sample is a little older, so it's possible that we found 
um, new parents who have started um, their family formation behaviors kind of at a later stage in their careers in which they've maybe already found ways of um, or have already coped with a lot of the demands um, that their jobs might give them and that they are starting families sort of when their work domains are like kind of set. Um, but that we do find that, um, when we think about positive spillover between work and home, or we think about even the home to work direction of positive spillover, um, we do find results there that kind of, um, are consistent with sort of the increase in stressors, um, around having a new child. Just as the stages of parenthood matter, I've got to think that where a parent is in their career or how old they are will impact the relationship between work and home. A new parent in their early 20s with less stability in their career would probably have more stress than a new parent who has more job security. So that's something, unfortunately, that we weren't able to really tease apart um, in terms of the effects of those, uh, 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 sort of the age of the parent at first uh, childbirth and also the stage of career one is at, um, largely because of sample size restrictions. So what would be really great was if we could take each of the categories that we have of the different parenting stages and then continually separate those out by like age of the parent um, in those uh, categories or sort of like stage of career. Um, So what we basically do is we adjust the estimates for any conflating factors that those might um, provide and and try to say, especially with, um, uh, and try to basically show that for the most part, people in the sample follow a somewhat more normative life course that we might think of, which is they tended to have kids sort of in their 20s and 30s rather than having them in their 40s. They tended to be, you know, working normative hours um, a- across the life course. And, and we sort of like control out those um, that influence. Um, it would be great to be I think I think in some ways it's going to be hard to parse out some of those effects um, unless you have sort of much larger data sets um, than, than, than what we had access to. So the roles men and women assume in parenthood is certainly not identical across the population. Consciously or unconsciously, it could be that men feel more of a drive to be the provider in a household where women feel the need to be a caregiver. If men get more satisfaction being the breadwinner and women seek to be the emotional support for kids at home, this would impact the spillover results between men and women. We didn't go in actually really even thinking about the breadwinning hypothesis because so much of the literature um, in kind of work-home spillover uh, or, or about work-home spillover is, so one, it's largely focused on conflict between work and home. Um, it's been one of the most salient research constructs, um, particularly among organizational psychologists who are interested in mitigating work-home conflict or work-family conflict. Um and, and largely, too, because a lot of the literature has not really focused on the experiences of men or of fathers. And so when we found this, it was kind of interesting to think about, like, why is it that men um, would report an increase in positive work-to-home spillover and women would report a decrease in positive work-to-home spillover and that this gender difference would be, I mean, I think it's the only significant gender difference in the entire study um, which led us to think a little bit more about just like what are the gendered norms that govern or shape the ways in which mothers and fathers think about um, the balance between their working and their parenting responsibilities. And it is true that for men, 
the act of working and the act of being a father um, or those social roles are more synergistic um, because in terms of thinking about masculine breadwinning, um, being a good father means earning money for your family. But for women, um, especially women attempting to, let's say, make it in a man's world, so to speak, but like trying to get ahead with their careers, that is always juxtaposed with the alternative model for for how they should guide their life course, which is being, you know, in an intensive mother, right? Like giving themselves all to the act of caregiving. And so um, I think that our results are broadly consistent with this, except that we um, broaden this to think about what that dynamic might do as children age. And so one of the things that we think about, um, so the breadwinning hypothesis might be particularly salient um, at the birth of a child because, and actually I've done qualitative interview work where I've talked to a a number of new fathers or soon to be new fathers. And one of the things they immediately say to me when I ask them how they're thinking about having, um, children and then also trying to get ahead with their careers and things like that is they're like, well, the main important thing is that like, I'm able to support my family. (laughs) And I'm really glad that at the very least, like, I know it's going to be super stressful and we're going to have a lot of you know, we're, we're going to kind of see how, how messy our lives get, but at the very least I can pay for things, um, which I think is consistent with this breadwinning hypothesis as well. Um, but also I think that these gender dynamics then extend, um, across the life. So thinking about, well, if you start parenting with such a specific gender division of labor, um, mothers are probably going to be more likely to be responsible for all the intangible aspects of child's development. So it's not just about, you know, going to soccer games or going to, you know, recitals. It's about being at home when children come home and they talk about the fight that they got into or the compliments from their teacher. And then, you know, being the one that children go to when they're dealing with adolescence and then thinking about which colleges to go to or so on. Um, Women then have to be a lot more adaptable throughout the life course um, based on their child's development in ways that um, men either don't foresee or fathers don't foresee or plan to do. If a mother and father in a household tend to divide up some of these parenting roles asymmetrically and early on in the kid's life, those roles probably aren't going to change much throughout time. You know, these, these roles are cumulative. Right. It's 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 the relationship that you develop with your child starts at birth. And it's not like at age 15, you have a completely different relationship with your child. You know, that relationship is something that's the accumulation of the past 15 years. And, you know, what happens at birth is that this very specific gender division of labor um, morphs into a gender difference at age 15 of of the child. Right. That like, you know, if you were more likely to be around or taking more time off to spend time with your kid, um, that will have ramifications later in life. I'm one example would be in our measures of negative work home spillover or more commonly known as work family conflict, men's levels of work family conflict start decreasing at an earlier age relative to women's. Um, so we can imagine that this could, this would be, this would be a finding that was be consistent with a story where women are still kind of responsible for, um, children's kind of, uh, transition to adulthood. And so their, their work and family lives are still, um, relative to men's more conflicting, um, because they might still be, let's say on call for when kids, 
you know, come home from college or like are making, are having a rough transition into adulthood basically. Um, or just more on call because their brain space is going to be more taken up by thoughts about their children aging into adulthood. Um, whereas men's work home spillover, um, starts to decrease at an earlier age. Now, part of that I, we think is, is partly driven by this parenting change, but it's also partly driven by, um, what we think is also a developmental, um, process where just, um, there could be, an overall developmental trajectory of work decreases in work family conflict as one ages. I come from a family of five kids. While my parents were dealing with college applications for my older sisters, they were simultaneously sending my younger sister to kindergarten. Households with kids at different ages are obviously not an exceptional circumstance. So how does this paper take that into account? There are two ways that we kind of think about this issue. One is we make a case that the we at least for this paper and in this framing um, we think about the age of the oldest child, regardless of the number of children um, a family has, um, as the sort of defining defining the parental stage. So that, you know, even families with a two-year-old versus families with a two-year-old and a one-year-old are um, being led, at least developmentally, by the two-year-old being kind of the oldest and sort of pushing the, the horizons of being a parent. Um, but we do know that um, having second or third children and younger children are going to uh, shape the parenting experience. One of the ways could be, especially if you think about older parenting stages, like younger children helping out or having just more bodies around that like, you know, even though there are more potential uh, responsibilities or obligations to having multiple children, um, you can have kind of have the kids play amongst themselves and then parents can kind of make dinner um, with a little bit less um, conflict or, or something like that. Um, at this, for this particular study, we weren't able to really, again, parse out sort of variation within parenting stages. I think a lot of these questions could be probably thought of as like variation in the parenting stage. It's like, yes, we have an overarching idea for how parenting stages um, look like across the life course, but there's obviously a great deal of heterogeneity um, among each of these uh, defined parenting stages, one of which would be um, how do these families look across um, parity or across the number of children that they have. What we do is we do adjust the estimates for any of these influences. So if the overall number of children in your household um, changed over the same time in which your child, your, your focal child aged into um, the next stage, um, we provide estimates independent of that influence. And again, it would be interesting if we could just say, okay, let's categorize these are all parents in the first parenting stage with a single child. These are all parents in the first parenting stage with two children and so on. Um, but again, we just don't have the sample size to do that. What does this mean for policy? If we take the assumption that the role of the benevolent policymaker is to maximize positive spillovers and perhaps even bring the gender differences closer to parity, what would we do? The obvious answer would be to give public support to childcare, something that disproportionately tends to fall on mothers. But there's been some evidence out of Denmark recently showing that America's lack of government-sponsored childcare might not be the only thing causing gender differences in the workplace. The evidence suggests that wage compensation for men and women in Denmark is pretty even until childbirth, at which point the mother's wages suffer, but the fathers do not. The thing is, Denmark is known for having relatively generous parental leave and daycare policies. So could it be that culture is what's at work here, and policy can only do so much? I think that there are... I would say two big takeaways. Um, 
so in the study uh, that you sent with this research out of Denmark, um, demonstrating that, you know, even in Scandinavian countries with fairly generous uh, family leave policies, there is still a gender disparity. Um, what I particularly actually enjoyed about that article was its focus on not just wages, but labor force participation. So it's not really about, I mean, when we really focus on just wages, we're really thinking about kind of mother discrimination. Um, like, and there's some work that suggests that women start seeing a penalty, um, in the U S at least, um, in their wages, um, Part of it's sex discrimination, but part of it is wrapped into this idea that many organizations might see women as future mothers, in which case they have they see like a premature, you know, motherhood penalty. Um, but really, like when we think about overall earnings and and what women may be able to take home, um, there, there a lot of it is around labor force participation and the degree to which women can get back into the workforce and. Um, it's interesting, the relationship between leave taking and wage growth um, is actually more curvilinear than linear. So it means that there is a point at which there's too much leave taken that it, it, it permanently, you know, um, detracts from women's earnings capabilities across the life course. Um, so a lot of different countries are exploring kind of like limits right? Like where, at what point is it like, let's say it's 52 weeks or 60 weeks or whatever that you leave the labor force, um, for family reasons that you kind of get to a point of no return. Um, and, and anything before that, you know, you could still go back into the labor force and continue your earnings trajectories, um, similarly to the pre-birth earnings trajectories. Um, so that's one comment is, 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 focusing on um, the length of leave um, and particularly um, providing research around what that length should be. Um, but the other aspect of leave taking um, that I think is particularly important to focus on, especially when we think about gender disparity, is the idea of joint leaves. So there is some research that demonstrates that um, when policies require men to also take leave, um, this is, of course, among heterosexual couples in which both a man and a woman are working. But um, in order for the woman to take leave, the man also has to take leave. And there is research that demonstrates that this has the power to um, provide a little bit more parity among the earnings between men and women. Um, but the, the sort of second dimension, and this kind of gets into the culture question, which is there's also research that demonstrates that even when there is this like joint leave taking, there, there's a lot of variation in terms of how required that joint taking looks. Um, and I'm thinking about, let's say, a comparison case between South Korea and um, I can't remember if it's Austria or Denmark, but one of the European countries, um, oh, well, let's take Canada, for example. In Canada, men are required to, to go on leave. Um, otherwise, their wives or partners aren't able to get the same kind of benefits. Um, in which case this, this actually leads to more men taking leave. But in South Korea, there's a policy that says, you know, we really want, um, men and women to take leave or to share the leave taking after the birth of a child or any other sort of family caregiving responsibility requirement. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, variation and how organizations might implement it. And there's a lot of impetus on organizations to figure out how to make the policy work, which means that there's a lot of freedom for men to say, I'm just not going to do it. Um, and so that sort of speaks to kind of an interesting, I think, 
juncture between policy, like if you just look at the wording of the policy, the South Korean policy, from what I know, and I haven't read it myself, but based on research that I've read, um, is actually fairly generous. And, and it, is, it, it arises out of a distinct recognition among the policymakers about so many South Korean women leaving the workforce after their kids, after having kids. Um, and so there's a, there's a, one, a recognition for wanting to get gender parity in earnings and in labor force participation, and also like a distinct policy recommendation that is ostensibly structured to, to, to gain parity, but then variation at the organization and individual levels, um, particularly organizational cultures and individual cultures, I think, um, prevent that policy from really achieving its maximum potential. Okay. Make sure men take parental leave after having a baby and try to figure out what the optimal length of leave is. I can see how that will help recalibrate companies' perceptions of employees of childbearing age. But again, if assumptions for what men and women do in parenting are ingrained in our culture, can we really change those attitudes from the top down? I think about uh, Barbara Risman's work, who is a very renowned gender scholar in sociology. And she has this kind of like multi-level model of change, um, which is like sort of institutional, organizational, interactional, and individual um, and, you know, a lot of times as scholars and as researchers, we really only focus on one level um, because that's just what we can do. Um, but in reality, in order for really any social change to happen, um, you kind of need kind of to attack it at multiple levels. And so policy and any sort of policy levers um, that we could imagine to enact any sort of real behavioral change and then subsequently cultural change, I think is only one of many potential, um, ways to do this. Um, and it, I'm not a cultural sociologist, so I, I'm not familiar with the ways in which people study individual level cultural change, but I think that there is some research interest in figuring out how, you know, millennial and post-millennial cohorts are thinking about gender these days. Um, and, and that could potentially provide some clues as to whether or not, any of the sort of big policy changes that we've seen in the last, you know, two decades or so have done anything to shape differences in gender norms among people who have yet to start their work and family lives. Right. Um, so I will say the other thing, um, and this is not, ba this is based on research in the U S and not in the European context, but, um, we do know that, most young adults these days, and I'm thinking like sort of 18 to 30 year olds, um, as they're thinking about like their future work and family careers and plans, um, there is gender parity um, for the most part in what they want, what they say that they want. So, you know, men and women both say they want an egalitarian household. They both say they want to contribute equally to paid and unpaid labor. Um, you know, it's also interesting, at least in the U S context that almost everybody still wants kids, which, um, is not true for the European context. Right. Um, but the interesting kind of takeaway from some of these studies is that while everyone has this kind of similar ideal, um, they, they also recognize that ideal is really hard to attain. Um, so there is this like implicit recognition that the structures that are in place at the moment don't allow men and women to freely make these decisions. Right. And so when you push men and women to say, OK, well, what would be your backup plan? Um, men tend to default to sort of a neo-traditional model. It's like, OK, well, if I can't equally share, I'd rather be the one making the money. Whereas women um, and there's some differences across samples, but women tend to either opt for 
also a neo-traditional counterpart, like, okay, I'm happy to stay home or uh, what people have been calling kind of the autonomy model. Why well, I'd rather not get married or have kids if, if I have to give up, you know, my ability to kind of participate in the paid labor force. So I think that provides some clues as to cultural change. Cause it's like, well, if young men and women these days really do want to share equally, still want to have families, want to make it all work. Um, but they have gender differences in their backup plans. Maybe as they're going along their life trajectories and thinking about, you know, what decisions they're going to make, they're going to try for the gender equal or the gender parity kind of solution first. But if they don't get it, that's where we see the kind of gender differences start to emerge. Right. And um, then that really provides kind of a, a role for structure there. Right. So if the structures were more open and allowed men and women to make the decisions as they wanted, um, we'd see more parity. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Compernal at Radio Free Jerome Studios in New York, New York. My guest today was Catherine Lynn of Dartmouth College. To read her paper, check out our show notes and follow us on Twitter at Upset Patterns and on Facebook at facebook.com slash upsetpatterns.